0: Yet he's engaged the Indian army, a horrifying Christmas Eve disappearance, and a young man's holiday visit with his relatives turns into a nightmare encounter with the ancient and eldritch. All this and more in the next hour of the Spectral Skull Sessions Yuletide Special.
1: You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the Twilight World of Myth, Mystery, and Imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small-s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started.
0: Hello out there to our international audience, and uh, happy end of Hanukkah. Tonight is the last night of Hanukkah. Christmas is right around the corner, and the solstice is next Monday, the 21st. And so in light of this being the season, and our show being Tales from the Twilight World of Myth, Mystery, and Imagination, or at least that being our tagline, we thought it was fitting to have three apocryphal stories from the Yuletide these are stories which may or may not be true or may or may not have some kernel of truth behind them we'll go into some detail about each story but each story has something to do with the type. all right chris and i believe you're going to get us started with the uh stories about the yetis is that correct yes we're going to talk about the yeti so the yeti also oftentimes termed the
1: abominable snowman is a mysterious Bigfoot-like creature, although typically indicated to be white, that lives in the mountains of Asia. Sometimes it leaves tracks in the snow, but also it's said to dwell below the snow line. Also, oftentimes the Yeti is considered local folk legend, really more or less a warning for various indigenous indigenous wildlife that could be dangerous to humans, right? So, uh, most commonly, if we don't take the Yeti's existence to be actual, it's seen, seen as more or less this kind of figurative warning, don't go out into the wilds because something bad will happen to you. <clears throat> uh, interestingly, a little bit of background on the Yeti, when Alexander the Great conquered the Indus Valley, in 326 BC, he demanded to see the Yeti. The locals could not bring him one. They said Yetis just can't survive in this low of an elevation, right? So he's having some historical context here, uh, at least going back to 300 BC. Obviously before that, if if the legend was uh, was in existence at the time he conquered the area. So uh, more recently, this happened in April of last year 2019 the Indian army is the army of the country of India claimed to have found Yeti footprints and published images of them on Twitter uh, it said that the quote mysterious footprints of the mythical beast Yeti were at the Makulu base camp which is in the Himalaya, Himalayas Uh, This was widely mocked by the public. And actually, the story I I looked at for this is from BBC News. You can't substantiate this. I'm looking at these images of these footprints. I mean, it could be an abominable snowman. It could be a Yeti. It could be something else entirely. However, I do think that a military power disclosing yet again the existence of the supernatural is not something that we should take lightly. What are your thoughts on that, Dane?
0: My thought is that the Indian, uh, the Indian sort of historical and scientific community seems like it might have a little bit of insulation from the rest of the world. So I've heard all kinds of interesting stories out of India. I've heard that, um, you know, there are people doing research on the Vamana. These are these ancient um, flying craft that are mentioned in their scriptures. There's people who think that maybe that the scriptures are in some sense, literally true and that there were actual, uh, wars with fire which are interpreted as nuclear weapons that might've been used in ancient India. And so I kind of wonder if that ties in with the Yeti. I looked up that the Yeti are not from Hindu scripture, but it just seems like uh, there might be sort of an alternative, uh, alternative community down there in India, sort of different ways of looking at reality and exploring reality. Uh, another possibility
1: uh, in 2013 uh, research by a British uh, scientist he he thinks in his findings that the yeti is just a subspecies of the brown bear so what people are finding these tracks is actually this bear uh, that's roaming around the area so there, there's your
0: possible scientific run of the mill explanation for this absolutely yeah bears they can be mistaken for people because they can stand on two legs
1: absolutely what do you think dane was it the yeti
0: so i guess i would be skeptical that the yeti physically exists i would think the yeti would be in the category of mothman that has sort of an apparition cryptid apparition Mm-hmm. that's my suspicion that it's like an indian mothman but you know chris hasn't Uh, Haven't the Himalayas been having a number of weird stories coming out of them just this uh, past few months? I've also heard stories about the Indian Army saying that they were under sonic attack or some kind of attack uh, near the border with China. Hmm. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. No, I hadn't. I mean, it might be a case of uh, high strangeness happening in the Himalayas.
1: may, May in fact be. All right, so I think that's all we have to say about the Yeti. Maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, but the Indian military force seems to think so. Uh, What did you have up next for us, Dane?
0: That's great, Chris. I have a story to follow that from 1890, December 24th, the alleged disappearance of one Oliver Lurch, a young man from South Bend, Indiana. So here's a real Tide story. It's also a horror story. So I'm just going to read the story. And uh, this comes from anomalyinfo.com. We'll talk about its, um, the past of this story as well, though, later. So here it goes. It was December 24th, 1890, and the Christmas festivities were in full swing at the farm of Tom Lurch in South Bend, Indiana. Friends had come to participate in the annual celebration. Even the local Methodist minister, Reverend Samuel Melilu, had come for the evening. Outside, the snowfall had stopped, and the clouds had drifted away, leaving a beautiful landscape of fresh white snow lit by a bright moon. Lurch's sons, 20-year-old Oliver, 23-year-old Jim, were each paying attention to a young lady. Oliver was singing songs with his girl, Lillian Hirsch, who was the daughter of a Chicago attorney, who was also in attendance at the party. Around 10 p.m. Oliver's mother asked him to fetch some more drinking water from the well and after throwing on a good coat he took two buckets and headed outside to fetch the water as the festivities continued. About five minutes later the mood of the event was shattered when Oliver started screaming. Tom Lurch and a host of the partygoers ran outside to help Oliver only to discover they could hear his cries coming from somewhere in the night sky above them. Help! Help! It's got me! The yelps and screams from Oliver seemed to be moving around above them, sometimes closer, sometimes farther, but no one could see him in the moonlit sky. Soon, the cry stopped altogether, and the lurches feared the worst. Neighbors were called in, and the entire farm was searched, from the top of every roof, to the bottom of the well, to the end of every field, It was during this search, around 10 p.m., that Oliver's voice pleaded for help from above, one more time, to the horror of the eight or nine people standing in the yard of the house who heard it. And then Oliver was heard from, no more. The search turned up no signs of the missing young man, but it did reveal another strange detail. Oliver's footprints in the snow stopped just 225 feet from the house only about halfway to the well. Where the trail ended, one of the two buckets was found. There was no sign of a struggle or of Oliver turning back, just his normal footprints stopping in the middle of an open space with no place for a person to go. But gone he was. The search continued all night and well into Christmas Day, but no further evidence could be found. There was simply no sign of where Oliver Lurch or his missing bucket could have gone. He was never heard or seen again. So that's the story, Chris. Oh, scary stuff. So I first heard this story from uh, World Strange's True Ghost Stories, which was a collection of uh, sort of ghost stories, and they're presented in a journalistic format. And I thought, well, this one just has to be lifted from an actual newspaper. And it turns out it was in many newspapers in the early 20th century.
1: Yeah, when I read the story, I'm thinking or listen to you tell a story, you know, I'm thinking something <clears throat> something snatched him and pulled him into the sky. Um uh, we talked about various cryptids like the thunderbirds, um something large. Uh, also maybe like something like the Jersey Devil, which we haven't covered here.
0: Right, the Jersey Devil is known for leaving tracks that kind of go like up over Physical objects, like it'll Mm -hmm. its tracks will stop at a house and then they'll reappear on the roof as -hmm. though he just seamlessly transitioned from the ground to the roof. So there's a track connection there. But in this case, the tracks were left by the boy and not by the cryptid. But there's definitely a strongly implied Mm -hmm. cryptid, right? Because he says, it's got me. What is it? Some people have speculated it might have been a hot air balloon with a hook that he might have gotten hooked by some sort of uh, crazed hot air ballooner. But <laughs> Christmas Eve in the middle of the night, it seems unlikely. Yeah, absolutely. So if you will Google this site, or sorry, Google this story, um, there are some websites that say this never happened because some people who did research have traced the story back to the 14th Times or other people have traced it back to uh, Legend Magazine. Actually, I don't think, hold on, correct me on that. I don't think it is Legend Magazine. But other people have traced it back to uh, another fictional periodical from the time. Although Fortean Times is actually not fictional. But anyway, so people have said uh, it looks like the story ultimately originates from a source that's unreliable, even though it's presented as journalism. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of skepticism. But thebizarrevictorian.livejournal.com victorian.livejournal.com, went a little bit deeper in their research. And they said that they were able to trace it back to Ambrose Bierce, who was a very popular journalist from, I believe it was the late 19th and early 20th century. Hmm. So they were able to at least positively trace it back to someone who was uh, journalistic. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's, it's really unique too. Yeah, it's unique because, you know, you just don't have any information at all about what happened to Oliver.
1: He's just
0: gone. Yeah, and they hear
1: him from the sky. It doesn't even really sound like a UFO abduction. I mean, other than something from the sky getting him. But the fact that they're hearing him yell and
0: scream, there's no lights. Uh, Truly bizarre tale. Absolutely, Chris. And some tellings of the story, as it's been retold, like I said, it was reprinted in numerous newspapers... It made its way into the 14 times. There are some versions that say that Oliver's voice was heard throughout the winter coming from the sky, but that Mm. by the spring it had faded away entirely. Oh, wow. So there's a story where, you know, the provenance of the story is a little unclear. Like we don't, it's hard to say for sure because nobody was ever ever able to trace this back specifically to um, the family, the Lurch family, I don't know if anyone who's been able to hunt them down, sort of talk to any descendants or relatives and say, oh, yeah, I was there. But, um, you know, it also comes from Ambrose Bierce, who was a legit journalist. So kind of uh, uncertain story here.
1: Yeah, and uh, the explanation uncertain, you know, we could have had a mad balloonist, possible specter or ghost of some kind of wraith, Maybe a cryptid, maybe a UFO, or maybe something else entirely different.
0: This is a weird one. Absolutely, Chris. All right, we should probably get moving then to the third one. Uh, I suppose I should introduce this one also. So we're going to have Chris read it. It's Lovecraft's The Festival. So this is one of uh, my favorite short stories from H.P. Lovecraft. And I selected this story... Because H.P. Lovecraft has a strong connection to the occult and the counterculture. So let me read you a quote from uh, John L. Stedman, who wrote a book, H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition, colon, The Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. He published this in 2015. He says, Whether Lovecraft was himself a practicing, if covert, occultist, as some devotees believe, or solely a practitioner of the tail-spinner's art, his works fall clearly within the occult traditions of cultural and even supernatural beliefs, tracing back to classical Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. From the back of the book, it says, Modern practicing occultists have argued that renowned horror writer H.P. Lovecraft was in possession of in-depth knowledge of black magic. Literary scholars claim he was a master of his genre and craft, and his findings are purely psychological. Was Lovecraft a practitioner of the dark arts himself? Was he privileged to knowledge that cannot be otherwise explained? And the book says it promises to, ex- to tell you what the answer is if you read it. But I, I have not read this book, Chris. Um, I was just doing a little digging today. Uh, another reason why I came up and I thought H.P. Lovecraft would be a good thing to read, not only is this a Yuletide story, so it takes place in the, around Christmas, but I've also found numerous references uh, from countercultural and occult writers to H.P. Lovecraft. Even though Lovecraft wrote fiction, everybody says this is fiction. And uh, it's interesting to think about because one of the things Lovecraft used to do is he would mention certain recurring entities and uh, mythical books in his own writings. He talks, for example, about the blasted or cursed Necronomicon. And uh, Lovecraft not only. Re- turns to these texts that apparently don't exist often including quotes from them in his stories but other people started to do this too and Lovecraft encouraged other writers to uh, make use of his mythological system that he was building this has led some people to suggest that well maybe he was actually tapping into a mythological system outside of himself while others insist no it's just that Lovecraft initiated a mythological system so he's the first person to get this started
1: yeah interesting stuff and as we were looking at the story and looking at the copyrights one of the things that are problematic for uh lovecraft's works which are in the public domain or not have to do with this collaborative world building right so we encourage other people to do that there's this collaboration and that's made and the copyright claims related to particularly his later works problematic because of how many different hands were in constructing the, this world, this mythos that built up around him.
0: Yeah, the, um, I think it's called the Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. The Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. if anybody isn't familiar with it, is this idea that there are cosmic forces that control our reality and that these forces are themselves controlled by patterns in space and time but that human beings are no match for them. So the only reason why our planet isn't overrun by Cthulhu at this moment is because the stars are not properly aligned. But when the stars align again, Cthulhu will rise from the ocean and he will drive all mankind mad with his mere presence. But Cthulhu is just one of the most horrifying and best known of H.P. Lovecraft's um, entities. He also talks about Yog-Sothoth, a being that is both the gate and the gatekeeper, and he talks about other creatures called Shoggoths, which are apparently um, mechanical blobs that did work for the old ones, an alien race that once inhabited our planet after Cthulhu was gone, but before we got here. So his stories all revolve around human beings brushing up against these old ones or Yog sothoth or Cthulhu, things that are so cosmically alien, inhospitable, and implacable that merely encountering them drives people mad.
1: All right. Well, shall I get started, Dane? Absolutely, Chris. Take it away. <clears throat> the Festival, by H.P. Lovecraft. Afficient demones ut que non sont sic tamen quasi sint conspicienda omnibus exibient. Lactantius. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting wallows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because of my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed on through the shallow, new-fallen snow along the road that soared lonely up, to where Aldebaran twinkled among the trees, on toward the very ancient town I had never seen but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. It was the Yuletide and I had come at last to the ancient sea town where my people had dwelt and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled 300 years before, and they were strange because they had come as dark, furtive folk from the opiate southern gardens of orchids, and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town as legend bade, for only the poor and the lonely remember. Then beyond the hill's crest, I saw Kingsport outspread frostily in the gloaming snowy Kingsport with its ancient vines and steeples Ridge poles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow crowned central peak at time durst not touch. Ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks. Antiquity hovering on gray wings gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. And against the rotting wharves the sea pounded the secretive immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time beside the road at its crest a still higher summit rose bleak and windswept and i saw that it was a burying ground where black grain gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of gigantic corpse the priestess rode with very lonely and sometimes i thought heard a distant horrible creaking as of a gibbet in the wind. They had hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I did not know just where. As the road wound down the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me and full of silent hearthside prayer, so after that I did not listen for merriment or look for wayfarers, but kept on down past the hushed lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted, unpaved lanes in the light of little curtain windows. I had seen maps of the town and knew where to find the home of my people. It was told that I should be known and welcomed for village legend lives long. So I hastened through back street to Circle Court and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement in the town to where green lane leads off behind the market house. The old maps held good and I had no trouble Though at Arkham they must have lied when they said the trolleys ran to this place, since I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hid the rails in any case. I was glad I had chosen a walk, for the white village had seemed very beautiful from the hill, and now I was eager to knock at the door of my people. The seventh house on the left in the green lane with an ancient peaked roof and jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house when I came upon it and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow grass-grown street and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so that I was almost in a tunnel with a low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps with iron railings. It was an odd scene, and because I was strange to New England, i never known it's like before. Though it pleased me, I would have relished it better if there had been footprints in the snow and people in the streets and a few windows with the drawn, without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker, I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage and the bleakness of the evening and the queerness of the silence in that aged town of curious customs. And when my knock op- was answered, I was fully afraid because I had not heard any doorsteps before the door creaked open, but I was not afraid long for the gowned, slippered old man on the doorway had a bland face that reassured me. And though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with the stylus and the wax tablet he carried. He beckoned me to a low candlelit room with massive exposed rafters and dark stiff sparse furniture of the 17th century the past was vivid there for not an attribute was missing there was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which an, a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me silently spinning despite the festive season an indefinite dampness upon the place and I marveled that no fires should be blazing the high back settle faced the row of curtain windows at the left and seemed to be occupied Though I was not sure, I did not like everything about what I saw, and felt again the fear I had, had. This fear grew stronger from what had before lessened it, for the more I looked into the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too like wax. Finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote a genially on the tablet and told me i must wait a while before i could be led to the place of festival pointing to a ch- chair table and pile of books the old man now left the room and when i sat down to read i saw the books were hoary and moldy and that they included old morister's wild marvels of science the terrible Saducismus triumphatus of joseph glanville published in 1681 the shocking Daemonolatria of Ramigos printed in 1595 at Lyons and worst of all the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al Hazred in Olas Wormius's forbidden Latin translation a book which I had never seen but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered no one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of signs in the wind outside, and the whir of the wheel of the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spitting. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, but because of an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to the strange feastings, I resolved to expect queer things, so I tried to read and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon. A thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness but i disliked it when i fancied i heard the closing of one of the windows that the settle faced as if it had been stealthily opened it had seemed to follow a whirring that was not of the old woman's spinning wheel this was not much though for the old woman was spinning very hard and the age clock had been striking after that i lost the feeling that there were persons in the settle and was reading intently and shudderingly when the old man came back, booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in a corner, and got two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned, and the other of which he draped around the old woman who was ceasing her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoned me as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. We went out into the moonless and torturous network of that incredibly ancient town, went out as the lights of the curtain windows disappeared one by one, and the dog star leered at the throng of the cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, past the creaking signs and the antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and the diamond pane windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanthorns made eldritch, drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs, I followed my voiceless guides. Jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chest and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy. But seeing never a face and hearing never a word, up, up, Up the eerie column slithered, and I saw that all the travelers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the center of town, where perched a great white church. I had seen it from the road's crest when I looked at Kingsport and the new dusk, and it made me shiver because Aldebaran had seemed to balance itself a moment on the ghostly spire. It was an open space around the church partly a churchyard with spectral shafts and partly a half-paved square swept nearly bare of snow by the wind and lined with unwholesomely archaic houses having peaked roofs and overhanging gables death fires danced over the tombs revealing gruesome vis- vistas though queerly failing to cast any shadows past the churchyard where there were no houses i could see over the hill summit and watched the glimmer of stars on the harbor, though the town was invisible in the dark. Only once in a while, a lantern bobbed horribly through serpentine alleys on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway until the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Then I finally went, the sinister man and the old spinning woman before me, crossing the threshold into that swarming temple of unknown darkness i turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence phosphorescence cast a sickly glow on the hilltop pavement and as i did so i shuddered for though the wind was not left much snow a few patches did remain on the path near the door and in that fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they bore no mark of passing feet, not even mine. The church was scarce lighted by the lanterns and had entered it, for most of the throng had already vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high white pews to the trap door of the vaults, which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and were now squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps and into the dank, suffocating crypt, the tail of that sinuous line of night marchers seemed very horrible, and as I saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed that all the tomb's floors had an aperture down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase, damp and peculiarly odorous, that wound endlessly down into the bowels of the hill past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and the steps were changing in nature as if chiseled out of solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls made no sound and set up no echoes. After more eons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to the shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odor of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale night, light, and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for I did not like the things that the night had brought, and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite. As the steps in the passage grew broader, I heard another sound, the thin whining mockery of a feeble flute, and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of the inner world, A vast fungus shore litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at that unhallowed erebus of titan toadstools, leprous fire, and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the yule rite, older than the man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music, and in the Stagian grotto I saw them do the rite and uh, adore the sick pillar of flame and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the vicious, viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare. I saw this and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute, and as the thing piped I thought I heard noxious, muffled flutterings, and the throated darkness where I could not see. But what frightened me most was the flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above, a hasty venomous vedrigus. For in all this, that seething combustion, no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had brought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At a certain stage of the ritual, they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head that abhorrent necromonicon he had taken with him, And I shared all the obeisances, because I had been summoned to this festival by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness, which player thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce, louder drone, and another key, precipitating it as it did so, a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror, I sank to the likened earth, transfixed with the dread not of this, nor any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness, beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, there flocked rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid, winged things that no sound eye could ever holy grasp, or brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along, half with their webbed feet and half with their membranous wings, and they reached the throng of celebrants. The cowled figures seized and mounted them and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlightened river into pits, and galleries of panic where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize an animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet, and wrote that he was the true deputy of my father's who had founded the yule worship in this ancient place that it had been decreed i should come back that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed he wrote this in a very ancient hand and when i still hesitated he pulled from his loose robes a seal ring and a watch both with my family arms proved that he was what he said but it was a hideous proof because i knew from old papers that the watch had been buried with my great, 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 great grandfather in 1698. Presently, the old man drew back his hood and pointed to the family resemblance in his face, but I only shuddered because I was sure that the face was merely a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it. So the suddenness of the motion dislodged the waxen mask from what should have been his head. And then, because of that nightmare's position, barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come. I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere to the caves of the sea, flung myself into that putrescent juice of Earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down. Upon me all the charnel legions these pest gulfs might conceal. At the hospital they told me I had been found half-frozen in Kingsport Harbour at dawn, clinging to the drifting spar that accident sent to save me. They told me I'd taken the wrong fork of the hill road the night before and fallen over the cliffs at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from the prints found in the snow. There was nothing I could say because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong in the broad, window showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the street below. They insisted that this was Kingsport, and I could not deny it. When I went delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill, they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded, and even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Al Hazarad's objectionable necromonicon from the library of Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis and agreed I had better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read again that hideous chapter and shuddered doubly because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before. Let footprints tell what they might, and where it was I had seen it were best forgotten. There was no one in waking hours who could remind me of it. But my dreams are filled with terror because of phrases I dare not quote. I dare quote only one paragraph put into such English as I can make it from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Curse the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Shkakabio say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil brought haste not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws. Till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax, craftily to vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are digged where earth's pores ought to suffice,
0: and things have learnt to walk that ought to crawl. Thank you, Chris. That was an excellent retelling of the worst possible holiday anyone has ever spent with their relatives in <laughs> history. All right. Well,
1: thank you for joining us on this holiday episode of the Spectral Skull Session. We shall return after a Christmas break. Stay
0: strange, everyone. Stay sane.